morning, everyone. Again, it's good to see you and be with you. Our text this morning, we're going to uh, jump right in and hear from 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. Uh, you will notice that we have these lovely chair Bibles, and uh, if you would like to uh, join along there, it's page 833. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know from those whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every Good work. This is God's word. So we're in this uh, series of scripture, uh, in the series on scripture, second week, and it's the first time we've done this as a church, as Lance mentioned last week, and we began by asking the question, what is the Bible? Kind of a small question, easily uh, answered in a single sermon. Much like this week, we want to continue by asking, what is the Bible for? And so uh, last week we talked about how important it is to see the Bible as a library rather than a single book. And our text this morning would be taken from the section of the library known as letters or epistles. And in this letter, the experienced apostle Paul is writing to a younger leader, Timothy, who's functioning as a sort of interim pastor while Paul is in prison. Again, this has been known to happen once or twice in uh, Paul's experience. So imagine Timothy... He's doing his best to run the church in Ephesus, to encourage its, and, and its faithfulness to its growth and to its mission, and Paul is trying to help him. So this text includes this little observation about Timothy's relationship to Scripture. He says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Eugene Peterson translates that verse, you took in the sacred Scriptures with your mother's milk. So Timothy was immersed in the Hebrew Old Testament from a young age. I wonder what his earliest encounters with Scripture looked like. What kind of knowing was this for Timothy? Earlier in the letter, Paul mentions two women responsible for passing on the faith to Timothy, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. So pretty much the best names ever. More importantly, can we just pause and appreciate for a moment that without Lois and Eunice, there would be at least two fewer letters by Paul in our New Testament. If Lois and Eunice hadn't faithfully raised young Timothy in the faith, we wouldn't be looking at this text today. So shout out to Lois and Eunice. But here we are nearly, at, or a couple of millennia later, and we're considering the Bible with fresh eyes and ears, or doing our best as we can in that regard. And some of us, like Timothy, have known the scriptures from infancy, or pretty much. Others haven't. But wherever we are on the, on the spectrum of experience, our answers to this question, what is the Bible for, probably have some wide variants. Now, I'm one who grew up in the church, and uh, alongside songs about Jesus, of course, uh, we were taught songs about the Bible. Does anyone remember singing this one? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The rest of you are smiling and not singing along. You're like, wow, it's quite a tune. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how instructive that song really was. Like, sort of look at the lyrics. It's the book for me. Okay. I guess it taught us how to accurately spell Bible. So 
So that's, that's something. And then there's this one. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, here's one that's significantly more robust, theologically speaking. It's deceptively, but it actually is. Now, whatever else the Bible was supposed to be for, I grew up with this strong sense that it was to be read. And not just in church on Sundays. Everyone around me seemed to know that the Bible was for daily personal devotions. And preferably family devotions as well. That was kind of like bonus. For a time, our family did devotions together at the dinner table using a popular resource called Our Daily Bread. Anyone know about this? These little booklets were ubiquitous at the info tables of churches that I grew up in. They were printed every month, so they still are, I believe, and so they fit easily in your Bible. I think that was the point. And so for each day, there was a short scripture text, just the reference. It was to be read from an actual Bible, of course. And it was, this was followed by a short devotional reading, which also included a poem and a one little phrase, thought for the day. Now, I remember when my parents got my brother and I involved in the uh, dispensation of, of family devotions or in the reading of these. And so one of us uh, would read the Bible part and the other one would get to read the Our Daily Bread part. I say get to because... Somehow the two of us came up with this idea how to make devotions just a little bit more fun. And it had to do with the poem part uh, at the end, which always rhymed. That is, until one of the Boschman brothers got a hold of it. So here's an example. See if I can read this. It's pretty small text. But see the poem in the italics at the bottom? So if it was my turn to read, I might say, The Bible gives us all we need to live our lives for God each day. But it won't help if we don't read and practice what its pages tell us to do. And obviously, like you, we just thought it was the most hilarious thing. <laughs> and then, gratefully, my parents had a good sense of humor about it as well. They didn't try to quash our, quash our spirit of humor, developing as it was. So there was always this underlying awareness that if you weren't reading your Bible, there would be consequences. If your Bible just sat around collecting dust, that was as sure a reflection as any of the state of your soul. And, and there were a few songs about that, too, including this little gem. Have a listen. See some friends of mine Of all their books and magazines Not a Bible could I find I asked them for the Bible When they brought it, what a shame All the dust was covered or it Not a fingerprint was plain Dust on the Bible Dust on the Holy Word The words of all the prophets and the Um, so, yeah, even though I know Dan Klenner could have nailed that, that guitar part, there's a few reasons I didn't ask the worship team to lead that one this morning. There's a few blind spots in the lyrics. Don't know if you saw those. I guess he wasn't just going to see his friends. He, he couldn't help doing a little spiritual spy work. Has this happened to anyone recently? Like some friends come over, can I just, just see your Bible? Just, just want to check the dust levels. 
this, this song conveys the heart of this message that many religious people grew up with, that the Bible is for reading, ingesting, saving your soul, implication being if you aren't using it in this way, you are spiritually impoverished at best and eternally lost at worst. Now, during my childhood, there was always also this expectation that to be a really good Christian meant memorizing a lot of the verses from the Bible. Now, hear me clearly on this. I have nothing against memorizing Scripture, provided it leads to a living out of what we're taking in. So Scripture memorization, in other words, needs to lead to incarnation. It has to be about more than earning gold stars in Sunday school. So what is the Bible for? Our answers vary. The Bible is for memorizing. Yeah. The Bible is for winning arguments. The Bible is for proving others wrong. The Bible is for drawing clear lines of who's in and who's out. The Bible is for moralizing. The Bible is for mastering. The Bible is good for nothing. There are countless answers that we might give. There are countless answers that history has given about what the Bible is for. But how does Scripture itself respond to this question? That's what we want to look at this morning. Will you pray with me once again as we open up the text? God, we do thank you for your word, which is living and active and continues to permeate our lives, our cities, our world, uh, even today. So we pray for uh, an openness, a humility, as we come to this text this morning, that you would illuminate for us by your spirit what it is you want to draw our attention to and make us faithful in walking it out. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Verses 14 and 15, uh, once again, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this word but, of course, assumes that a contrast is being made. Paul's saying to Timothy, now certain people are doing one thing, but as for you... Now, one of the big agendas in this letter is counsel on how to deal with people who are being enticed and pulled away from the faith and are in turn enticing others away from it as well. Such people are often referred to in the New Testament letters as false teachers. They're given this global kind of title. Looking at the various uh, forms of their deceptions is outside the scope of what we're doing today. But all we need to know really is that they were driven by, among other things, novelty, speculation, as well as compulsive desires and greed, desire for their own notoriety. Now, in contrast to all of this, Timothy is encouraged to keep entrusting himself to the same path that Lois and Eunice and even Paul set him off upon. Why? Well, Paul offers two main reasons. One, you know the incomparable value of the scriptures you were taught. And two, you know the integrity of those who taught it. This matters. It's as though Paul is saying, you have deep roots in this stuff. And you can trust those roots. You're here to carry on the legacy of Holy Scripture that you grew up with, which always points to Christ. Sorry about this. So he's saying you're not here to be swept up in the latest self-serving alternative. Stick with what you know. Keep forging ahead. Now, that might sound to us like just sort of a coach sending in a player into the team. But just remember this context. This was no easy task in that world. In Paul and Timothy's world, persecution was the rule, not the exception. So back up a few verses to verse, chapter 3, verse 12, and you hear Paul say that everyone, not just a few, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And just prior to that, listen to what he says in verses 10 and 11. 
You, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. It's a story, uh, a number of years ago, I got to see Jars of Clay in concert. Any Jars of Clay fans in the house? And uh, they had recently come back from a trip to uh, China where they visited some of the leaders of the underground church there, hearing about some of the challenges they're facing, what it's like, as well as the growth, incredible growth that was happening in spite of persecution. And one pastor that they talked to never left the house without a bag containing a change of clothes because he never knew when he might be arrested. Uh, And so... Towards the end of their time, Jars of Clay band members began to ask, so how can we help you? What, what can we do? The Chinese pastors would say, well, the main thing, of course, is to pray. And Jars of Clay would say, well, of course, yeah, we'll pray for the persecution to stop. And pastors were like, no, no, no. Don't pray for the persecution to stop. Pray that we'll have the strength to endure it. Much like these 21st century church leaders in our time, in another part of our globe, Paul's way of seeing his own life back in the first century was so unmistakably and beautifully like Jesus. In his mind, it was clear that there are far worse fates than being persecuted for one's faith. Case in point, you could be deceived like these false teachers and deceive others in the process. Way worse. Now think for a moment about the key influencing presence in your life, or a key influencing presence. Someone who's mentored you, someone who has shaped you more profoundly than perhaps any other. And now imagine that person writing you from prison and saying, you you can more or less expect to be in my shoes at some point. Or the suffering might actually be more severe. But this is what you signed up for. This is the perspective Timothy is being schooled in. And this is the beginning of Paul's answer to what the Bible is for. And then he elaborates, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, what in the world does that mean? This is one of the questions that scholars and theologians, denominational leaders, pastors, Bible study groups have been wrestling with, arguing about for centuries. So the odds are definitely in our favor here that we can put all questions to rest within a single sermon. We're going to do our best. We'll camp here for a little bit. Now, the word breathed is often translated inspired. And that word is originally from a Latin word, and it means pretty much that, inbreathed. Now, what Paul meant by inspired is not what the word has come to mean to many today in terms of Scripture being inspired. So at least three problems to address before we move on further in the text. And N.T. Wright is extremely helpful in this. First... People often speak of artists and poets or composers, musicians, even athletes as being inspired. So we say things like, oh, that was just an inspired performance, or that goal was magical, or that performer had that X factor, whatever we might want to say about it. Sometimes we mean that we felt inspired by it. It lifted our spirits. It gave us a bit of a high, and it was, in that sense, inspiring The trouble with this meaning of inspired is that it doesn't come close to what Paul and other Christian writers mean when they talk about Scripture being inspired. They mean what Paul literally says in verse 16, that this thing, this book, has living breath in it, and it's the breath of God himself. Second, when people talk about poets being inspired, for example, they sometimes mean that the poet's own mind 
goes into neutral at times, and some other force or muse pours the words in from somewhere else. Uh, I remember reading elsewhere about J.R.R. Tolkien, who often experienced his own practice of writing in this way. So he's in the middle of a conversation, um, perhaps at the Burden Baby pub in Oxford, and at any given moment he would perk up and say, excuse me, I need to go record now. I don't think he was like pompous about it in, that, in the way I said it, but I just want to make sure you heard the word I was saying. So, enunciation. Okay, so I need to go record now, is what Tolkien would say. Now, some assume that like that, this is what is meant by the Bible being inspired, that Jeremiah and Paul and the others basically functioned as God's dictation machine. This simply can't be right. These two writers themselves, to say nothing about the rest, give plenty of evidence that their own personalities their own vocations, their own struggles, their own individual circumstances deeply affected the way they saw and said things. The inspiration of the Bible didn't, in other words, flatten out individual styles and points of view. If anything, it emphasized them, it highlighted them. Third problem is that many people who insist that the Bible is inspired presume that they know in advance what that would mean in terms of the Bible's own content. They presume that it means the Bible is going to support their particular type of theology. And again and again, that has been proved wrong. So when we believe it's the Bible that's the thing that's inspired, as opposed to anyone's particular system of theology, it sets us free from the prison of any human system. We're free to discover the larger world, even the greater framework of thought that the Bible itself invites us to share. Tom Wright summarizes in this way. Once we set these misunderstandings aside, we should be able to see and celebrate the rich unity and diversity of the Bible and to use it for all it's worth in the many ways which Paul now encourages. Or perhaps we should say, let it use us. The spirit who caused it to be written, who spoke through the different writers in so many different ways, is as powerful today as ever. And that power through the written word can transform lives. Amen to that. I want to move on in a few moments to Paul's main emphasis in this text, which is not, in fact, an argument for the inspiration of Scripture. But before we do, I want to share one more voice I've found extremely helpful in terms of articulating how we ought to approach the Bible. Reason being is that so many of us sitting in this room, as well as people we know who are outside this room, perhaps because they've given up on church, have inherited or stumbled into some really messed up views of Scripture. And this has led to an increasing amount of breaking up with the Bible to highlight our serious title and much less in the way of making up with it. So I, for one, would love to see that trend reversed. So I share this in a spirit of hopefulness toward that end. And the voice voice I'm referring to belongs to Scott McKnight. And here's a bit of his story as told in his excellent book, The Blue Parakeet, Rethinking How You Read the Bible. He writes this, I grew up with a specific kind of approach to the Bible and it's taken me a long time to develop a more complete understanding of the Bible. I grew up with what might be called the authority approach to the Bible. Simply put, it works with these words, God, revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and submission. Let me summarize. God revealed himself in the Bible. To make sure the Bible's authors got things right, God's spirit was at work inspiring what they wrote. Because God, who is always true, produced the Bible, it is inerrant, without error. As God's true word, therefore, it is our final authority, and our response to the Bible must be one of submission. 
McKnight says, I believe this is an approach that fosters a relationship with the Bible. Deep inside, I knew there was something wrong with framing our view of the Bible like this. It took me years to put my finger on it. Perhaps I can say it like this. When I read my Bible, the words authority and submission don't describe the dynamic I experience. It's not that I think these words are wrong, but I know there is far more to reading the Bible than submitting to authority. As a college student, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible was Psalm 119. Why? Because the psalmist and I shared something. We both loved God's word, and we both loved to study its words. But the psalmist's approach to his Bible, and you can just sit down and read it, is not expressed like this. Your words are authoritative, and I am called to submit to them. Instead, his approach is more like this. Your words are delightful, and I love to do what you ask. The difference between these two approaches is enormous. One of them is a relationship to the Bible. The other is a relationship with God. Here are some of my favorite lines from Psalm 119, and it's out of words like these that a relational approach to the Bible can be formed. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Parenthetically, I love that one. As a jazz musician, uh, there's a common misconception that in improvisational jazz, you can just kind of play whatever. The truth is, the more you understand how music works, the freer you are to improvise. So I love how this functions as a metaphor for the spiritual journey as well. What if the same is true in terms of knowing the God of Scripture? The more we get to know what God is like, the more freedom we experience. Continuing with some of uh, McKnight's favorite verses from Psalm 119, verse 47, For I delight in your commands because I love them. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. And here he says is perhaps the entire psalm in one line, I have sought your face with all my heart. God's face. How cool is that? A relational approach to the Bible finds room for words like delight, and my soul is consumed, and counselors, and freedom, and love, and the theme of my song, and good, and precious, and sweet, and wonderful. The view of scripture I grew up with didn't have room for such words. Deep inside, I knew there was more. What I learned about the authority approach to the Bible was that it is not personal enough, and it's not relational enough. It does not express enough of why it is that God gave us the Bible. McKnight continues by saying that people who are consumed with issues of inspiration, infallibility, authority, etc., are obsessed with the question of having the correct view of the Bible. Now that's fine, but it doesn't go far enough. Having the right view of Scripture is not the point of Scripture. We need more than a view. We need a relationship. Knowing that water will hydrate the body and believing uh, that drinking five bottles of water a day is healthy is not the same as drinking the water until you are properly hydrated. Those who drink the water are the ones who really know and really believe. So having the right view of Scripture is knowing and believing, but we need to move on to the next step of engaging the God of the Bible. If you want to read more uh, about that, I, I highly commend the Blue Parakeet to you as a, as a way for fresh eyes to approach the reading of Scripture by Scott McKnight. 
So how do we do this? How do we begin to engage the God of the Bible and not just have a view of it? I think in part by understanding the ways in which Scripture is intended to be used for our benefit. So the text continues this way. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Peterson translates this verse, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way. So let's take a brief walk through these. Showing us truth, first of all. For Timothy, in his context, of course, this was paramount. To to use the scriptures in such a way as to give sound instruction in the gospel to God's people, especially in the wake of all these false teachers trying to present alternative gospels. How does the Bible teach? How does it show us truth? Well, more often than not, it does so through story, through specific acts and events. A couple more voices to give ear to here. One is Jewish scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel. He said, the God of the philosopher is a concept derived from abstract ideas. The God of the prophets is derived from acts and events. The root of Jewish faith is, therefore, not a comprehension of abstract principles, but an inner attachment to those events. Here's another. A story doesn't grab you by the lapels and bring you close so that you can smell the cigarettes and coffee and Altoids on its breath. What a story does is sneak up behind you and whisper something in your ear. And when you turn around to see what it is, it kicks you in the butt and runs and hides behind a bush. And in so doing, a story does something that no abstract proposition can do. It stops you in your tracks and forces you to think. It catches your attention and won't let you go. You can't help it. A story can't be argued with or dismissed like a proposition. A story is just sneaky. It doesn't teach by induction or deduction. It teaches by abduction. It abducts your attention. It won't let you go until you have done some thinking for yourself. Scripture is very useful for teaching, for showing us truth in these ways, provided we are willing to be taught. Secondly, Scripture is useful for exposing our rebellion. This is the other side, of course, of Timothy's task. Because there was so much deceit, self-aggrandizement going on in his context, he he was to use Scripture to expose the errors of his false teachers. Say, no, that's not the story we're part of. This is the story we're part of. Showing what was wrong with what was being taught. Now, Scripture operates this, of course, in our hearts as well. As we read the Bible, it will, from time to time, inform us, hopefully in no uncertain terms, that something we've been doing is out of line with God's intentions. Sometimes this will lie plainly on the surface of the text. And other times, as we read a passage, we'll begin to hear the voice of God gently or maybe more like a kick in the pants, telling us that the particular story we're reading applies to this area of your life, Nelson, or maybe that one. Now, when that happens, as it may often do for those who read the Bible in this prayerful, relational way, we do well to pay attention. I love what Greg Coles said. He said, if we truly love Scripture, we have to love it enough to let it prove us wrong, to let it tell us what we don't want to hear. And sometimes the exposure of our rebellion comes to us through surprise. And Jesus was a genius at this. And we think God is a certain way, but then Jesus tells a parable, gets to the punchline. Um, Take the log out of your own eye so that you can properly see the speck in your brother's eye. We're like, oh, the lights go on for us. Can the God of the Bible still surprise us? Can it surprise us? Can God still surprise us enough to change the way we live? 
Third use, correcting our mistakes. So in addition to the rebuke or the exposure of rebellion, the rebuke of Scripture may be something that Timothy and others in leadership roles need to issue to others in the community. So correction is very close, uh, a close companion of rebuking, but leans more toward the behavioral, the ethical side of things. So correction is what's necessary when our misguided behavior is going to have clear social implications. We could say it this way, that we need Scripture to act this way in order for community to be possible and even to flourish. So these are some negative uses, but these, in Paul's teaching, are quickly balanced by the positive, finally training us to live God's way. Now, I read this last phrase as kind of a summary statement of all of the above and more, because obviously this little list is not exhaustive. Paul's main point in writing this letter, after all, was not to give people the right belief about Scripture, to give them a view, but to encourage them to study it and to stick with it themselves. So now I invite you to take a breath and zoom back out with me for a moment. Recall at the beginning we offered a number of various answers that we've tended to give with regard to what the Bible is for. Memorizing, mastering, drawing lines of who's in and who's out, that sort of thing. Contrast all of that with Paul's end game here. And notice that in his mind, the reasons we have been given the Bible have nothing whatsoever to do with winning arguments, being ready to defend it historically, or touting its superiority over the sacred writings of other faiths. It has everything to do with embodying the faith that has been handed down to us. How? By becoming thoroughly schooled in the way of Christ. And why? The text finishes this way. So that... The servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peterson's rendering, through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. This is why it's so crucial for us to continue learning to read the Bible well. A humble, open posture towards scripture is essential in fulfilling our mission as a church. So you take the scriptures out and then try engaging in our mission. To try joining God in the renewal of all things apart from or outside of Holy Scripture would be like trying to run a marathon with zero training or to climb Everest without a guide. McKnight said this, God did not give us the Bible so we could master him or it. God gave the Bible so we could live it, so we could be mastered by it. As we move toward response, there's a beautiful passage in Isaiah that speaks to the promise of what speech uttered from the mouth of God will do. I just invite us to listen to this together, a little bit of poetry from the prophet Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. 
So there are a number of ways uh, that we can respond to this. And uh, I've tried to outline what I've called invitations and practices or a possible guide to breaking up and making up with the Bible. I'm not sure if this is what it is going to look like for you, but here's a possible pathway. First point, a DTR. Define the relationship. Invite you to spend some time in self-reflection. And your goal is to try to define the relationship you have with the Bible and even more importantly with the God of the Bible. In neighborhood groups in your uh, upward direction this month during this series, you're going to be invited to do some of this together. But here's some possible questions you could ask. Am I reading the Bible these days? Without judgment, ask yourself the question, and why or why not? How is your relationship to the Bible connected with your current understanding of what God is like? Chances are there's going to be a pretty, pretty direct connection between those two realities. It may help you to approach this process kind of like an examine kind of an Ignatius mode, to think in terms of highs and lows. What parts of scripture cause you the most stress, discomfort, anger, anxiety, conflicting emotion, and why? And what parts of scripture bring you the most life, joy, and peace? What's your Psalm 119, uh, as Scott uh, McKnight put it, and why? So your answers to these questions and doing some honest reflection about them can help you to define the relationship that you have both to God uh, and the Bible. Second step might be a do-over. And when you're ready, start your do-over with Scripture. Now, I say when you're ready because I want to allow for the possibility that God might actually be leading us to take a break from Scripture from time to time. It's not something you hear a pastor say very often. But some of us have been so significantly wounded by the way others have handled this book that the pain might be too raw or that you might be in too vulnerable a state to re-engage it right away. If that's your story, I really believe Jesus would be the first to say, sister, brother, it's okay. Set it aside. Go consider the lilies for a while. Now, when that time comes, if you go through that process, dust it off and begin to approach the Bible relationally. Now, what might that look like? Again, this is going to be different, I think, for different people. But a common part of our journey, I believe, is much like Timothy's. We all require deep roots of trust in order for this relationship to work. If yours aren't that deep, then be patient. It takes time to develop deep roots of trust, both in Scripture itself as well as those of us who are trying to help steward it well alongside you. Both require time. I invite you to go back to this text, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Begin to discover its various uses with humility, with openness. Ask yourself, how might be God using Scripture to show me truth? What stories is he calling my attention to? How might God be using Scripture in this season of my life to expose rebellion? How might God be using Scripture, wanting to use Scripture, to correct my mistakes? And in general, how is God using Scripture to train me in the way of Christ? Those may be possible uh, helpful questions in getting your do-over started. Third phase, delight. Open yourself up to the possibility of delighting in the God of the Bible even as the God of the Bible delights in you. I don't think it's too much of an overstatement to say this, that if your reading of Scripture isn't leading you to love God more richly and to a continual rediscovery how much Jesus loves you, then you're probably reading it wrong. Now, this isn't to say that there won't ever be roadblocks to this. 
It's like any relationship. The questions, struggles, and doubts are there to help us engage honestly. We need to work through these things, but we do so while facing the one with whom we're in relationship. A few days ago, I listened to another On Being podcast. If you've heard me preach in the last half a year, you know that I've enjoyed Krista Tippett and her interviews with various people. And in this one, she interviewed uh, Desmond Tutu, an Anglican Archbishop Emeritus of Cape Town, South Africa. And in the interview, he comes to a point where he's talking about his spiritual companions, the people who shaped him profoundly under the horrible conditions of apartheid. Um, so much like Desmond Tutu, we all have our own version of Lois and Eunice and Paul, right? We have those presences in our lives who have, have served and handed us what we know. And then he says, we discovered that the Bible could be such dynamite. That's the word he used. He said, I subsequently used to say that if these white people had intended on keeping us under, they shouldn't have given us the Bible. The interviewer asks him for an example to which Tutu responds. Well, it's actually right the very first thing. I mean, when you discover that apartheid sought to mislead people into believing that what gave value to human beings was skin color or ethnicity, and you saw how the scriptures say it's because we are created in the image of God, that each one of us is a God carrier, no matter what our physical circumstances may be, no matter how awful, no matter how deprived you could be, it doesn't take away from you this intrinsic worth. One saw just how significant it was. And then he tells this little story. He says, although I was a bishop, I had a small parish in Soweto. Most of my parishioners were domestic workers, not people who were very well educated, but I would say to them, you know, mama, when they ask, who are you? You see, the white employer most frequently didn't use the person's name. They said the person's name was too difficult to pronounce. And so most Africans, women would be called Annie, and most black men would, would really, you were just boy. And I would say to them, when they ask, who are you, you say, me? I'm a God carrier. I'm God's partner. I'm created in the image of God. And he said, you could see those dear old ladies as they walked out of church on that occasion as if they were on cloud nine. You know, they walked with their backs slightly straighter. And yeah, it was amazing. You and I share something in common with scripture. We too are God-breathed. We've been saturated with divine breath. God's life is flowing in and through us. That is why Paul is able to say in a different letter, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're signposts, you and I, of another kingdom. We're previews of another reality that is breaking in. We're not ultimately going to heaven. Heaven is coming down to us. The trajectory of the Bible is down, not up. And when we get that straight we begin to realize what this book is truly for. It's for changing us into carriers of God. Let's pray. Let's be still for a moment. I'll pray and I'll invite us to, to the table. Blessed Trinity, 
whoever we are, wherever we've come from, it's good to know we can be assured of a welcome from you. It's good to be reminded that we are made in your image, that we have been created to be carriers of the divine nature. We thank you for the gift of scripture, and we pray for your presence to accompany us as we journey with it, wherever we are in our relationship to the Bible at present. You would give us courage to to face into that journey, um, where we've been reading it wrong, misunderstanding, um, not quite getting its overall point or intent. Pray for courage to, to face into that and for wisdom to know how to emerge from it into a new beginning. Thank you for this series. Thank you for these huge questions that we're attempting to wrestle with in an honest way and pray for your continued presence and guidance with us as we, as we walk through this series together. We thank you ultimately that we have the gift of Jesus Christ, that his life showed us the best way to carry the divine image. Thank you for his willingness to live in a cruciform way, that he didn't consider his life or equality with you something to be grasped, but was willing to make himself himself nothing. Thank you for this event of the cross, and that we too are called to follow in those footsteps, that our lives are to be cruciform, willingly offering ourselves for the sake of others. So as we celebrate this meal together, we invite your presence to be near, to be with us, We pray all these things in the name of Christ.